You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we sit down with Craig Allen, who on July 26, 2018, began his tenure in Washington, D.C. as the president of the U.S.-China Business Council, USCBC, a private, nonpartisan, nonprofit organization representing over 200 American companies doing business with China. Prior to joining USCBC, Craig had a long, distinguished career in the U.S. public service starting all the way back in 1985 at the Department of Commerce International Trade Administration. On today's show, we talk about what is the extent of high-tech relations between U.S. and China? What steps are China taking to advance Chinese innovation? How does the China 2017 intelligence law have an impact on technology transfer? How has the Biden and Trump approach to China relationships been similar and how have they been different? This and much more today's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. So now let's begin our show. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Now, I'm very excited about today's episode. I'm sitting down with Craig Allen, and Craig was introduced to us by the Bay Area Council. Many people have listened to past episodes where we've had Sean Randolph on our show, who's given us an abundant amount of information on European and U.S. incubators and accelerators. So please look in our archives for that episode. So with today, I mean, we got the man when it comes to U.S.-China. We have the CEO of the U.S.-China Business Council, Craig Allen. Craig, can you give our listeners a little bit about your background, a little bit about your career? Well, thanks so much, Sean. I come from the U.S. Foreign Service, so 33 years as a U.S. diplomat. Most of that in Asia split between Tokyo, Taipei, and Beijing. The bulk of my career was doing trade negotiations with Beijing, and I have all the scars uh, to show it. So delighted to be with you today and look forward to the conversation. Now, we're here at the Silicon Valley Podcast, so I'm just going to go right into tech questions. There's so much talk here with the high-tech relations between U.S. and China. Can you dive into a little bit about the extent of this? Well, let's just be clear about how big the relationship is and how complex it is. So simultaneously, China is our largest market for most tech companies. They're our largest supplier. And at the same time, Chinese companies are huge competitors, and China is our main geopolitical rival, all at the same time. And so it makes this relationship very complex with a compliance and a regulatory burden that's high for either Chinese companies, tech companies coming into the US, or American tech companies going to China. I would argue that really technology innovation ecosystem, if you will, is the most important question in U.S.-China affairs. Yes, we have a lot of geopolitical issues and a lot of economic and trade issues, but the technology issues are really, in my view anyway, the most difficult, probably because we don't have uh, clear rules of engagement under the WTO, which was written before the internet. And therefore, without clear rules of the road for competition, clear rules of the road for cooperation, and or a mechanism to enforce those rules, it's a very complex and difficult environment for American companies and Chinese companies as well. And it will impact the global innovation system in a big way. So we have to get this right, and it's important that we talk about it. So why does the Chinese government put so much emphasis on science, technology, and innovation? Well, Sean, uh, the Chinese government is a communist government, and they are following the fundamental principles of communism. They are atheist. They are very scientifically disposed. They look at themselves as the party of science, and they embrace technology and science in a manner that is much deeper than what we would see in, if you will, an enlightenment country, Europe or or the United States. 
So for the Chinese, and I, I would say it's almost as true for the Japanese and the Koreans, science is an unequivocal good that virtually the entire society is appreciates and supports. You see this in many areas, be it in uh, genomics or in facial recognition or in other areas where Western governments and scientists and universities and institutions might be squeamish, the Chinese are pretty much secure in their faith that science is almost always a social good and something that should be pursued aggressively. So you don't have the angst about technology in China, Japan, or Korea, Northeast Asia that you would find in the United States and certainly in Europe. And that, to a certain extent, gives them perhaps some advantages over American companies, at least in some areas. That was interesting what you said about kind of the enlightened versus focus on science. With that, what steps are China taking to advance Chinese innovation? Well, there are many. Xi Jinping has said that technology is uh, the key to the future and technology will determine countries' place, places' relative positions in the world. And therefore, they are the Chinese government and the party are working to advance science and technology really across the board, the whole spectrum. And they are doing many things. I think in one area we could just call innovation policy, they are distributing subsidies, large amounts of subsidies. The, the numbers are, are difficult to get a hold of, but going to both state-owned enterprises and private sector, there are licensing and regulatory approval processes that support Chinese companies over foreign companies. We have government procurement, which is very important, particularly for IT, but not only, also for medical equipment and pharma that oftentimes favors domestic Chinese firms. We have tax incentives. We have barriers to foreign investment, say, almost throughout the whole internet domain, foreign companies cannot compete in China. Standard setting is an important mechanism by which the Chinese government can tilt the balance in favor of Chinese companies, perhaps on an international scale. And I would say mergers and acquisitions is another area where we've seen a Chinese approach that oftentimes favors technology companies in China as opposed to foreign companies, that the, the pace and, and the conditionality of mergers and acquisitions, even for mergers and acquisitions that don't include Chinese firms, a merger between an American and a Japanese firm or a uh, a European and, a, and an American firm would probably need to be approved in China. And that's proven to be a little bit dramatic in, in recent years over concerns about technology. So there are many ways that the Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party have influenced the innovation ecosystem in China to benefit Chinese players, preferably state-owned players, but also private sector Chinese companies, which are in and of themselves very dynamic, strong, large, important global actors. There's a lot of things mentioned there with the Chinese government. What about the U.S. government? I mean, from my understanding, they've implemented the U.S. Competitive Act. How familiar with this? Can you tell us a little bit maybe what the goals are for this and your thoughts of what could result from this? What might it manifest? So the U.S. Competition and Innovation Act uh, was passed by the Senate almost unanimously. It's currently in the House, and the House has taken this 2,400 pages of legislation, don't drop it on your foot, and has divvied it up between various committees in the House. And so it's unclear exactly how this process is going to work out, whether the Senate version or the House version will work out, whether they'll pass a number of different pieces of legislation or one omnibus bill. But I think that the fundamental pillar of the Competitiveness and Innovation Act is money, mostly for the semiconductor industry, but 
also for other high-tech industries so as to try to improve the security and stability supply chain in the United States. And I think that it is predicated on a perception, and more than a perception, the truth, that semiconductor manufacturing in Taiwan and in China and in Korea and in Japan is very heavily subsidized. And so this is to try to present a level playing field and bring some of that investment in fabs back to the United States. And that would be a centerpiece. But there's a lot more to it than that. It's 2,400 pages, much of it good, much of it a concern, though. A lot of it is predicated on the perception of unfair competition from China and is meant to present new tools, new programs to try and offset some of that competitive pressure that American companies are feeling. And so, at least within our group, there is support for much of the legislation, although the Chinese government would be very concerned about mentions of Taiwan and looking at Taiwan in a manner that is different from previous U.S. commitments of 50 years ago, which assure China of the one China policy, uh, and we look at Taiwan as being a part of China. And so, this bill is with quite a bit of controversy, but I do expect something to come out of the 2,400 pages, but very reluctant to predict what or when. We shall see. You had mentioned semiconductors. You're very specific. Uh, for audience out there that wants to learn more, we are going to be doing a short little series with the Intel alumni group. So remember to uh, check every week for our new episodes. But going from that, from a specific industry to a little bit more broad, in terms of software, hardware, and commodity companies between the U.S. and China, where do you see the opportunities? Oh, gee whiz. Yeah, the U.S. and China are really a synergistic, are interconnected, are, are interdependent. A Lots of investment, venture capital going both ways. And so on the one hand, business is great for many companies. On the other hand, the regulatory and compliance burdens are really growing. And the Chinese have articulated a plan for technology self-reliance. Now, there's a little bit of a contradiction here or a paradox, if you will, that while the Chinese claim that they are looking for technology self-reliance, and indeed some Chinese officials have used the, the term scientific sovereignty, whatever that is. At the same time, they invite American companies in and roll out the red carpet in, in, in welcome. And so how are American companies to look at that? Are we welcome over the longer term? Or is the, if you will, the nationalistic, the self-reliant part of going to win out over the longer term? And if we do enter the China market, either through trade, licensing, or investment, will we be able to count on the Chinese courts to police those agreements to ensure that our intellectual property rights and trade secret business models uh, are protected? And I think that that's very dynamic. And I would say that the general rule of thumb should be that if you're working, cutting with the grain, if you're contributing to China's economic development, then you're probably going to do very well. And if you are perceived, however, to be taking actions that are not conducive to economic development in China, then it becomes more complex. For most companies, the compliance burden is growing. And I think that as Export controls, investment controls, prosecutions, entities list, sanctions, concerns grow. It becomes more complicated and more expensive, therefore, to do business in China. Nonetheless, China is going to provide about 30% of economic growth in the foreseeable future. And China in the tech area will be probably way more than 30% economic growth. So our companies have to be there. You have to be a leader in China if you are to be a global leader, period, full stop, end of story. So how are you a leader in China while being fully compliant with both Chinese and American law? Therein lies a, a great challenge that all of our companies are, 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 are dealing with. Uh, I do think it's possible, but it's 
it's expensive and a challenge and not becoming easier over time. A little bit before the pandemic was trade zones opening up in different parts of China, especially to encourage Silicon Valley startups to land, set up offices and grow their operations there. But from at least recent conversations I've had, they've never really caught on. Why is that? Are they still being encouraged? Well, I, th- I think, Sean, if you go back in history and it, you look at the Chinese experiment with special economic zones, you'll find that they've done rather well. In the early 80s, Shenzhen was a, a fishing village. And today it's a home of Tencent, Huawei, DJI, and BYD, some of the most innovative companies in the world, I think we could say. There are many others as well. More recent history, I think you're right, has been much more mixed. Currently, the flavor of the day is Hainan Island. And many American tech companies are looking at Hainan as a possible opportunity to set up wholly owned data centers. Now, will this be allowed and will they be allowed full connectivity into the global internet and also into China as a link between China behind the firewall and on both sides of the firewall remains to be seen. But that seems there are companies testing that out. And perhaps we could talk again in six months to see how that goes. But right now, Hainan is apparently behind the firewall, so all all internet services are available there, and companies are allowed to engage in innovative business models, at least on a a trial uh, basis. So let's watch this space. But from a Chinese perspective, the special economic zones have worked out really well, and they have ignited the tech investment that the Chinese really wanted to see, and they have a great future. And Shenzhen is probably the best example uh, of that, but there are many more. There are many other examples of special economic zones that have contributed in a very profound way to technology innovation and investment. So watch this space and we'll look at it over the longer term because tech in China is moving uh, 120 miles an hour and things change very rapidly. And if an investment incentive is open in Hainan, that it isn't open anywhere, you might find very large aggregations of capital and talent going down there to take advantage of it very quickly. Remember, China has scale and it has speed. And you put scale together with speed, and you could have really awesome changes in a short period. With that, though, I mean, we talked about companies testing the waters. For years now, we've heard of the Chinese government possibly being engaged in forced technology transfer. At least that was what was alleged through the last presidential cycle. Can you talk about this? Was that happening? Is that continuing? What's, what should our listeners know? The Chinese dislike the term forced technology transfer because it's difficult to define. And so I think that it is helpful first to define the term. How USTR defined it in the trade negotiations was in a few different ways. Firstly, it, in kind of principle, it's a trade-off between market access for technology. We will allow you into the market only if uh, you, trade, you, you provide the technology. Now, the first way that that was done was on what we call equity caps. So if that business was allowed, but only a 49% share to a foreign company, that would be a form of forced technology transfer. And I think that we find that remaining in, for example, the clouds in China. Another form of forced technology transfer would be if a, say a chemical company was to open up a new factory but it had to provide more data, more data, more data for its environmental impact assessment, including proprietary data. And in some cases, the teams of Chinese engineers that reviewed that data were competitors. And that would be a form of forced technology transfer. We find in the standard space also 
some very uncomfortable situations where Chinese standards bodies are asking American or European companies to reveal data that uh, is proprietary associated with standards essential patents. And that is something that should be looked at. And then finally, there is a question of just simple cyber espionage and hacking into systems to obtain the intellectual property for commercial. So the Chinese government has pledged, and as far as I know, has met the pledge of forbidding all of these practices. And I think that that has ameliorated the threat, but not removed the threat. And we have to remember that the competitive environment in China is just simply very different than it is in the United States. I was talking to one American high tech and the way that that country had put it, yeah, I have 500 employees, uh, 400 of them want my job and the other 100 want to leave the company and compete against us. And that is a competitive environment that we're working in in China. And that's just a little bit different even than Silicon Valley. The problem of a senior engineer, for example, leaving and starting up a a new company that makes something similar or a joint venture partner going upstream or downstream to compete with the OEM is something that we have seen many, many times. We see that in California too, not in as colorful a manner. I would argue that that's not a form of forced technology transfer, uh, but sometimes the lines get blurred, particularly if perhaps a government incentive, perhaps at the local level, perhaps by a university, perhaps by a competitor, were put in the way of the chief engineer who put in his resignation to take care of his poor sick auntie and then opens up a competing factory right next door. But that type of thing happens a lot. It happens to Chinese companies as well. And to a certain extent, that's why the Chinese competitive environment is so much more complex, gladiator-like, if you will, and that people reach for those economies of scale just as quickly as possible so as to be able to uh, swat away later competitors. But it's, it's a very, very competitive, very difficult capital-intensive game that people are, are involved in with ethos of competition that uh, I dare say would be much more severe than what you would uh, commonly find even in Silicon Valley. I think that four or 500 employees, 400 want my job, the other 100 want to compete with me. I think that's the best description I've ever heard of the atmosphere there. I lived there five years. Most of our listeners know this, but that was spot on. To continue on, on the same question, just a little bit deeper. Can we talk about the 2017 intelligence law and that impact with technology? Yeah, so the 2017 intelligence law requires PRC citizens to work with the Ministry of State Security upon request. Now, if you talk to a Chinese lawyer, they will tell you, ah, oh, yes, but this is predicated on a national emergency only, and it does not pertain to normal commercial or uh, routine technology or events like that. I'm not sure. I'm not a lawyer. I'm just a, a, a diplomat. But the language seems to me flexible to, enough to be used in, in different circumstances. And so the law has really raised a lot of concerns in Washington about technology transfer. So if there is technology that is being shared with Chinese employees, would the Chinese state through the uh, Ministry of State Security have the right to require Chinese citizens to provide that information? And I don't know the legal answer to that, but the fact that I don't know the legal answer to that is a concern because, and I think that the intelligence law really holds Chinese PRC national researchers, scientists, and technicians had a real disadvantage here because collaborators from many countries might be concerned about the intelligence law and their legal requirement to share that information upon the request of the intelligence agencies. And so, at, at least in my view, it's 
very unfortunate and should be revised, such that Chinese innovators, scientists, technical entrepreneurs uh, are not held at a disadvantage relative to their competitors around the world. And I've stated those views uh, very publicly to the Chinese government and would be happy to do so again in the future. What technology collaboration efforts have ceased and what proceeded during this time? Any sectors particularly hit? Well, I think that American companies uh, need to be very cognizant of the export control law and deemed exports. Deemed exports being the export of knowledge or data or information about a controlled technology. And this has forced many companies, particularly in the IC area, to segregate their corporate websites to ensure that Chinese teams are see only information that does not break uh, American law. And this can become very complex very quickly if you have highly integrated teams or if you have PRC citizens who are leading research efforts, perhaps in the Netherlands or Israel or, or wherever in Silicon Valley itself. So the legal requirements under the export control law are forcing people to reconfigure their R&D effort. But this becomes very complex if you are tightly integrated with your customer or your supplier and you need to work in a really detailed manner. You need to do so in full compliance with both laws, uh, both sets of laws. And that is more and more difficult, particularly in integrated circuits, 5G under 10 nanometers. I would say that in biotech, we also have seen many challenges, but in biotech, it's not the same degree of national security concern. And there seems to be a a greater degree of kind of global sharing with multiple players. Whereas in uh, the semiconductor space, it's more constrained. And that makes it perhaps more difficult for American companies. Nonetheless, uh, my members are all completely dedicated to the China China market for the longer term. We are going to continue to sell, to invest in China. Many are doing joint research in China. But sometimes those research efforts need to be carefully managed and segregated in some cases so as to ensure full compliance with the law. So this does get complicated. But it can be done, and indeed it must be done, if our companies are to be global leaders. So that's the price that we need to pay. For our listeners, please check out who the members are of the U.S.-China Business Council. They are the who's who of technology companies, the biggest names. With that, some American companies are now transferring technology from China to the U.S. Are there any impediments? So I think that your observation is spot on. And over time, China has become a technology exporter, and not only to the developing world, but also to the United States. And indeed, many of our companies are deeply integrated into Chinese industrial ecosystem, and they import technology either that they have developed in China or that they have licensed and and brought over from from China. And we're going to continue to see that. And indeed, I expect it only to accelerate over time, either intra-company transfers or inter-company transfers, both. And I think that we're going to see increased adoption of Chinese business models. We already see it in some cases. The fallacy that China is a technology copycat is completely outdated. China has enormous numbers of junior engineers who are very hungry, who are very well networked and coordinated, and who could really do amazing research and development, as well as fast prototyping for throughout, I would say, not only the electronics industry, but every industry from fashion to automotive to telecom computing, maybe not everything, but China has many areas of excellence that will continue to grow. And I think that uh, as Chinese scientists and engineers play a larger role in the global innovation ecosystem, that their contributions will only multiply. 
We see that very clearly in the numbers of Chinese that publish in the top scientific journals and the numbers of collaborations between American and Chinese academics in those journals. And that's sure as heck going to lead to technology development down the road. And I think that particularly in healthcare, say oncology, that is something that could really produce enormous dividends over time. Let's see. We're in a very interesting, complex situation where we are collaborators and competitors, competitors and collaborators. The Chinese have enormous strengths. We have enormous strengths. They have some very good equipment. We have some very good equipment. How do we how do we collaborate becomes a very spicy question, both for academics as well as companies, as well as individual scientists who have to manage these waters very, very carefully to bring the ship through to safe port is not at all simple and is becoming more difficult over time, but it can be extremely productive if we are able to figure out the right protocols. So if things work out perfect, everyone's collaborating. Fantastic. Now, what happens with the opposite extreme? So for example, Zoom has R&D facilities in the US and China. What happens if in the future things don't go the way everyone wants and maybe tech companies have to kind of pick a side and move everything to one or the other? What would happen then? Well, let's hope that that doesn't happen because bifurcating the tech world is just going to lead to waste and inefficiency. I would say, Sean, that the major challenge here is over data and particularly PII, personally identifiable information. Both Chinese law and American law recognize that if one has a PII of over a million users in either country, that you need regulatory authority to bring that across borders. So cross-border data flow, particularly of PII, is the biggest challenge that we have. And I would note, we have a lot of really good statistical information on this recent surveys of June of this year of our members. It's available on our website. So you could break it down really exactly where the challenges are. And I won't bore our, our, our listeners with a lot of data here, but it's all available to you. But I think that, let me, let me tell a little story. I had a Chinese internet entrepreneur, a very successful individual I was talking to, who said that he has a global personalized medicine website and that he had to keep two server farms, one in Silicon Valley and one in China. And the reason for that was that if he brought over PII into China, he would not be able to export it again. He would not, he could bring the data in, but couldn't send the data, use the algorithms to get the, the recommendations back to the customers outside of China because it uses a PII. And it's that type of data problems that can really bifurcate the world. And I think that we're seeing that in personalized medicine, but in many, many other areas. And under the CFIA firma regulation, Chinese companies are not permitted to have American PII. Now, if we were to take that same regulation and transpose it into China, it could cause a lot of trouble for American companies who are already in China. But my hope is that my internet friend in my internet entrepreneur friend in China or Chinese banks, Chinese tech companies are going to lobby on behalf of cross-border data flows and reasonable cybersecurity policies, reasonable restrictions that don't bifurcate the world because we really need each other if technology is going to develop in a, in a wholesome manner. And that baby could be killed in the cradle if governments are overly heavy on data regulations. And I think that the core of the problem is governments look at data as kind of an undifferentiated mass, right? And it's not. PII is sensitive, important data, and there should be appropriate reg regulations on that, definitely. 
but national security data, economic data, scientific data, they can, they should really be treated differently. And it is unclear to me that the governments have the uh, sophistication to, to do that. And so until we have common definitions of privacy policy and cross-border data flows and cybersecurity, so secure safety and adequate protections, we're not going to have any rest or certainty. So this is an area that is going to continue to require a great deal of management and education as we talk to both the U.S. regulators and the Chinese regulators, asking them, please watch what you're doing. Don't put into place policies that are going to kill innovation, kill collaboration that is mutually beneficial, or stop investment that both countries need if we're going to develop. And that's a, not a given, especially as technology continues to develop so very, very rapidly. I think that the TikTok and WeChat case were very interesting exemplars of that challenge. But there are many other challenges that we're going to face down the road, hopefully a little bit more elegantly than how we manage TikTok and WeChat. Can you actually go a little bit deeper into that TikTok WeChat? Because there had to have been something there that maybe the mainstream audience or news wasn't telling us. Why was it such a big deal? Well, I would say that in both cases, the data on a cell phone is very rich. And therefore, the data that companies may claim that they need to run their algorithms properly might be excessive. And the U.S. government was concerned that data was being drawn off of cell phones, perhaps government personnel, perhaps military personnel that might have compromised national security interests. But that led to executive orders, which were eventually overturned by the courts. And I think that the WeChat case and the TikTok case are quite different. The WeChat case was overturned on First Amendment ground. And the TikTok case on the grounds that it was probably sloppy lawyering and poor, poor drafting. But I wouldn't say that this saga is over at all. And rather that the even with the new administration, with the Biden administration, that under the ICTS or Information Communication Technology and Services regulations that were passed two days before the end of the Trump administration, that offers the Secretary of Commerce enormous power of subpoena and licensing should she need to use it. And so this Act 1, Scene 1, might be over, but Act 1, Scene 2 might be on our doorstep. And we're going to have to uh, wait uh, and see how this develops. But the concerns of the State Department over clean channel and the concerns of the Chinese government by what they call Anke, or safe and secure uh, communications, are unresolved. And we will have to work with both governments to ensure that business can carry on and that neither side, perhaps intentionally, but probably more likely unintentionally, doesn't kill trade and investment that has so benefited both countries for, say, the last 250 years. And the next 250 years look pretty bright, actually, if we're able to figure out these, these rules of the road. So one thing that's also been the news now for quite some time is being considered possibly the biggest human initiative is the Belt and Road Initiative. If that succeeds, what impact for a global business perspective will it have? How will it alter the whole political aspect, the political dynamics of the world? So the BRI, as you note, is very large and therefore difficult to talk about, really, in, in a compact manner. But I would say that the core of it is building infrastructure, and mostly in the developing world. And I am married to a proud African, and I am happy to tell you that Africa needs infrastructure. And ditto in many places in Asia, Latin America, et cetera, et cetera. And most Africans very much welcome the BRI. Now, that said, there are a lot of problems. First, it's almost all debt, not grant. And it's almost all tied debt. In other words, you must use a Chinese supplier. So there are concerns about quality as well. 
Now, the BRI is, has loose definitions, but it is expanding. And the Chinese are love to talk about the digital BRI, where, if you will, molecules, a group of a uh, hundred different, or a dozen different Chinese atoms or companies will get together and as a unit try to put in safe cities, for example, or telecom data centers and infrastructure. And I think that that raises concerns all of their own about dependency, about following a single standard, not having multiple vendors, about indeed espionage and security, privacy of communications. It also raises concerns about human rights. And so the digital BRI is, brings a panoply of questions that really do need to be addressed. And I think that are, are very important from either a tech perspective or a human rights perspective or a, a commercial perspective as well. And then I would say that there's a medical BRI and a vaccine and mask diplomacy is part of the BRI as well. And that raises a whole panoply of questions also. Will the Chinese vaccine hold against the Delta the gamma and the epsilon variant of COVID-19. And I don't think that we have a real good answer for it, but it is a major concern of all of the BRI countries that have been recipients, and I would say grateful recipients, Chinese vaccines. So the jury is out on this, but there's incredible drama and unfortunately incredible suffering being felt across much of the developing world that has been reliant on the Chinese vaccine. And by reliant on, maybe not voluntarily, perhaps they were gifted, perhaps they were the only vaccines that were available, and certainly they're better than no vaccine but perhaps not as good as best in class. So the BRI is an enormous initiative. The concerns about debt over-reliance are, are real. The concerns about technology over-reliance are real. The concerns about that these are a, a mechanism by which state-owned enterprises are able to unload excess capacity in China are real. And countries need to be on guard and negotiate really good deals with the Chinese government or the Chinese state-owned enterprises that they're dealing with to ensure that they're getting world-class products at a world-class price and not overpaying on that interest rate. It's not free money. Uh, you got to pay it back. Nonetheless, BRI is going into many places in Africa that others simply will not enter. And thus, that infrastructure is very, very welcome throughout much of the BRI recipient countries. Speaking of negotiations, how has the new administration and the past administration, their approach to China, how has it been a little bit different or similar? Or, or... Well, it's been about seven months. And I would say that the bilateral relationship today, six and a half months into the Biden administration, is significantly more tense than it was under the Trump administration. And I, I would have told you after the election that that would not have been the case. I would have been wrong. And so let's unpack that for a second. The reasons why the bilateral relationship is more tense are probably threefold. First, the Biden administration is very much means it when they say, that we run a foreign policy based on values and democracy, and that human rights are at the core of our foreign policy. And that's a change, it's a normative change in our foreign policy that has set us at loggerheads with the Chinese. But it's much broader than that. The second major change is that the Biden administration really means it when they say that we're going to put allies first. And indeed, one of the first things that the Biden administration did was hold a meeting of the Quad, that is India, Australia, Japan, and the United States at, at the presidential level, at the summit level. And while that was not directed against China, certainly the Chinese took it that way. And similarly, when the president was in EU. In the EU, he also met with NATO in Brussels. And so at the NATO meeting, NATO has changed its doctrine to include China. That is a major change, particularly when you look at the Quad and NATO, that certainly has to give Chinese military planners pause as they consider China's place in the world. 
And I would say that the third change is really not a change, but the Chinese were expecting a relaxation of technology policies and, say, a welcoming of Chinese students and academics and professors and scholarly exchange across the sciences. And that has not changed. Christopher Wray, the director of the FBI, is still in his job and, so far as I know, has not changed their policy. Now, I, I say I put that in there as a change because the Chinese anticipated and expected a relaxation that they have not seen. Ultimately, today, on August 10, the administration will tell you that the policy remains under review, that there's going to be changes coming, but it's all under review. And when I ask when the review will be done, I am told that that's under review. So I, for one, am not holding my breath that there will be major changes. And I fear that the political dynamic, House and Senate, but also in China as well, make it very difficult for Xi Jinping or Joe Biden, either of them, to find the political space that they would need to put forward compromises that would ameliorate the tension within the relationship. And thus, I fear that the high level of tension that we're feeling today will continue at least until the midterm election in November of 2022, which happens to be almost concurrent with the 20th Party Congress, at which time we would expect Xi Jinping to be reaffirmed for a third term in office, perhaps elevated uh, to a higher level. But And at that point, perhaps we could look forward to kind of a reshuffling of the cards, a reappraisement of, of the relationship. But until that time, I'm afraid it's pins and needles. And Craig, with all that you've seen over the years, is there anything in particular that has really surprised you in terms of business or tech? Why, why not? Could you share that with us? Well, I am astonished at the speed uh, at which the Chinese can move. Take Tesla as an example. The fact that they were able to go from a rice paddy to a productive facility in 18 months is just astonishing to me. And the fact that they were able to successfully harvest subsidy after subsidy after subsidy from the Chinese government for promoting green energy is really, really amazing to me. I think that the Chinese commitment to climate change is very real. China will be, more Chinese will die of climate change uh, than probably any other country. I, I regret to say that, but it's probably true, with the exception possibly of in India or Bangladesh. China, in terms of human suffering, is really on the forefront. We all are, but the Chinese more so. And I think that an awful lot can be done there. I think on the technology side, I'm also very impressed at space technology. The Chinese are doing some amazing uh, things with their satellite program and working with the Russians to put a lunar site up over the next 10 years or so. And I think what I've learned is stop underestimating the Chinese, that their engineering talent is as good as any engineering talent around the, around the world. And they have the scale that is the number of engineers to accomplish great things. And Stalin, I think, put it well when he said, sometimes quantity has a quality all of its own. And China has the quantity, it has the scale, it has the, the quality, and it has the urgency and the speed really to do really interesting. China challenges us. How we accept that challenge is up to us. And I hope that we accept it in a manner that advances humankind that advances our own prosperity rather than in a kind of a negative manner. The Olympics of technology with all of its many events, right, should be one where the competition is has good rules, strong rules that are enforced, where both sides uh, can win and where we both advance as a result of the challenge. We uh, must not allow an Olympics where a competitor deliberately undermines another competitor for a protectionist reason. And I think that we, we have a lot of work to do on both sides 
to ensure that the technology Olympics are free, fair, open, and all of all, all of mankind can win, which is what I think that we should hope for and, and work towards. And I am sorry if this sounds naive, but I think it's possible. Great. And with that, if anyone wants to find out more information about you or your organization, what's the best way to go about doing that? So we are the U.S.-China Business Council, and I encourage anyone to get our daily news update. You can subscribe for that for free at www.uschina.org. We welcome inquiries. My personal email address is C-A-L-L-E-N at uschina.org. And it would be a pleasure to communicate with any of you. We are invite you to work with us to help to shape the most important bilateral relationship in the world. A lot of work needs to be done, and we're looking for collaborators who, who want to grow in China to become more prosperous, to develop America through that growth that China offers us. China will present as much as 30% of global growth over the next 10 years. What does it mean for American companies? What does it mean for American technology? Well, let's make it as meaningful as possible and as positive as possible for our country. Thank you very much. Fantastic. We'll have all that information in the show notes. So please visit us at the Silicon Valley Podcast.com, where we have all our past episodes, a lot of resources for our listeners. And don't forget to connect with me on LinkedIn if you want to find out more what I do during the day, my nine to five as a mergers and acquisition investment banker for the mid-market. With that, I want to thank you, Craig, one more time for your time today on the Silicon Valley podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the siliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.